Hey everybody, Payments Professor here, and it is the Payments Podium. And today we have PJ Barron with Prime Revenue. He's going to be joining the Payments Podium, and he's going to be talking to us about some things with B2B payments. He's going to talk to us about what's happening in the world of FedNow, real-time payments. He's got a lot of experience when it comes to working with supply chains too, so I'm real excited to welcome PJ to today's Payments Podium. Welcome. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be with you today. Looking forward to our discussion. All right. Well, I got to tell you, everybody who comes on the Payments Podium, I start them off with the same question because this industry is, it's, it's not one many people go to school for and go, I want to be in payments. So the question is, how did you get started in electronic payments? Great question. So I, you're right. I didn't go to school for this. Uh, I went to Georgia Tech. I'm an industrial engineer by training and really by career. So prior to, I joined Prime Revenue in 2009, so uh, 13, almost 14 years ago. Uh, and I got into this world of supply chain finance and global B2B payments. But prior to that, I had 20 plus years of experience supporting uh, supply chains for, my, for clients all over the world. And today, uh, I think it's a natural progression to get into the world of payments because the way that I would describe my career is the first 20 years or so were supporting uh, the information systems and the automation of the physical movements of goods and services around the world. And today, what I do is I help clients to automate and create more efficient processes to move money that follows the physical movement of that, those goods and services around the world, wherever it may be. So where I worked on physical supply chain for 20 years, for the last 13 or 14 years, I've been working on the financial supply chain. All right. I love that. Help people to be able to create and automate the process for moving money. Because those of us in the payments industry, we know that the movement of money is not as always as it easy as it should be, or that it may appear to be in some cases. Now, one of the things that we know is really big today in the world of electronic payments is we've got FedNow coming. We've got RTP that's been out there. Real-time payments have been available for a little while now. And we know that this is going to impact the payments world somehow. To get this conversation started, what are your thoughts on what you think or what you see is going to happen when FedNow goes live in the B2B world? So I think it depends. So the way that I think about payments and the payments universe are, you know, you've got consumer to consumer, you've got peer to peer, you've got B2B. And that is really not nearly granular enough. I think you need to think about B2B. Uh, today, um, you know, the business that I run supports 50,000 businesses in 90, current, uh, 90 countries 30 currencies, uh, and we will support the movement of somewhere between $350 billion and $400 billion uh, in the U.S. dollar equivalent on a global basis. And some of those suppliers are very small. Some of those ticket sizes are very small, and some are incredibly large. Uh, it would not be, you know, that we've done, we've supported payments in the hundreds of millions of dollars on the platform. And so I think where, uh, you know, usually any new technology like FedNow or real-time payments is going to have the early adopters. And I think in the case of real-time payments, the first impact and the biggest impact is going to be consumer to business. Mm -hmm. So businesses that are selling directly to consumers, 
being able to get money faster, being able to you know, sort of bypass a delay in payment for my credit card merchant processing company, those types of things. I think then it's going to be uh, smaller B2Bs. And I actually think the larger, more complex business-to-business -business payments, cross-border payments, multi-currency payments, uh, you know, where there's a lot of invoices that are being paid on one payment, those will be later adopters, but I think it represents a lot of promise. So I think the early adopters will be those SMB businesses, the small and mid-sized businesses, especially ones that sell directly to consumer. And it's going to have a big impact on, on their working capital, I believe, that their ability to be able to collect the money immediately, get confirmation represents a tremendous amount of promise. Okay, you really just nailed a whole bunch of things there <laughs> when it comes to, you know, the, the world of what we're going to be seeing. And one that I, I got to say, it caught my attention right away. A, a couple really did. But when you talked about the invoice payments and getting multiple invoices included in there, do you see problems in that world or if people or really, I should say, what problems do you see when it comes to getting that invoice information across in electronic payments or when there are multiple invoices? What kind of problems are you seeing there? So that is a, an area that I've been involved supporting clients for 30 plus years. And when you think about the procure to pay process, and that is a procure to pay, the procure to pay process occurs on the buyer's side of the ledger. So if I'm say Volvo cars, and I'm buying all of the components to be able to manufacture a car, I'm the buyer. And if I'm Michelin or American Axle, and I'm a supplier to Volvo selling them, for me, it's order to cash. So I'm taking orders and I've got to manage all the way through the receipt of the cash and then the reconciliation process. That reconciliation process is incredibly complex. And I think there's a lot of promise with real time payments and with FedNow, they both have standards established and a goal of providing rich data, which doesn't exist with many of the bank rails that are in place today. So if I have thousands, potentially thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of invoices that are being uh, consolidated into a single payment, that reconciliation process is incredibly complicated. It's one of the most complex, challenging processes that accounting departments and large corporates have. So where, where we see the biggest opportunity uh, for automation and, and transparency and efficiency is that order to cash reconciliation process. So if I receive a lump sum payment, imagine that you're a supplier selling to a large global manufacturer, you're sending them products all over the world and you're sending them invoices every day. Many times you'll send dozens of invoices each day and you get one payment a month. And that one payment is going to cover thousands of invoices. There's always going to be credit memos, offsets. You're always going to have deductions for quality or damaged in shipment goods. Maybe the wrong thing was shipped. Mm -hmm. So being able to do that reconciliation process is really, really complex. And not having visibility into what invoices are being paid with that payment is the biggest problem that I see really in most corporates globally today. Oh, okay, I've got a bunch of questions now. <laughs> one of them is, okay, first of all, let me ask this one. With 
FedNow and RTP being one-time instant payments. They're not batched. They can go anytime, any time of the day. Granted, I do have to acknowledge for anybody out there listening who's screaming, hey, they have a $500,000 limit for FedNow, million-dollar limit for uh, RTP. That doesn't solve for a lot of business payments. I get that. I get that. But it is the, the ones under the million for RTP, the ones under for 500000 for FedNow. Is it possible that people, instead of sending multiple invoices in the single payment, would go to using the singular payment because of the instant availability? So it's so there's a couple things. First, the FedNow is $500,000, but out of the box with the banks and the, provi- the service providers that opt in, the Fed is is going to sort of have the default at a hundred thousand, and I doubt that many of the service providers will increase that, except in rare occasions for very strategic clients. Initially, until there's you know several quarters of history, so it remains to be seen whether it's five hundred or a thousand or what the practical application of that is, and um, that's that's a really big deal for my clients. That's a really big deal. Our, you know, it's not unusual for us to have an average payment in the millions of dollars. Um, but it is absolutely potential that that can have an impact. It is unlikely that it will have an impact for a lot of the, the raw materials that are used for physical supply chain companies. So when I say physical supply chain companies, I mean retail, manufacturing, distribution, where I'm buying product, I'm doing something to that product, and then I'm going to sell that product because I'm carrying that inventory for some period of time. And most businesses like that have long negotiated contractual payment terms that are not going to be instantaneous payment. While the supplier may want instantaneous payment, the buyer is going to be motivated to try to match their payment terms with the inventory ter- uh, terms that they have, so that they're not they're they're sharing the burden of the carrying cost of the inventory with the suppliers that are providing that, and that's a business practice and a business standard that is very longstanding. So I think you have to take out a lot of the cost of goods sold, um, and I think it has a, a perfect uh, implication for indirect materials, for marketing costs, mm-hmm. for office supplies, and it reduces the burden on the accounting department of the payor and the payee in that case. But I think for the largest portion of the cost, it's going to be some period of time before those business practices are worked out and modified where it has an impact on the cost of goods sold. So the goods for resale type of inventory. Okay. Well, here's the other thing I got to ask too, because when you're talking about how complex the reconciliation process is, and it's, it is something that's been a nightmare for decades. And, you know, it probably goes back to way before we even had paper money, they had problems reconciling things. Well, we know with FedNow, it's going to be data rich is one of the promises with the ISO 20022 format. What do you see as far as the adoption in the AR and AP departments and the ARAP software that's out there. What will businesses need to do, need to consider that to be able to ingest that ISO 20022 format or to be able to even output it, to be able to send it to other AP and AR systems so that this can become a win-win situation? So one of the challenges with B2B payments in particular is that 
network, the networks are really fractured. There's multiple constituents. There's my bank, there may be a payments provider with me if I'm making the payments, then somebody needs to receive the payments, they're gonna have a receiving bank. And then most importantly is my enterprise system. So my enterprise accounts receivable, accounts payable, so my accounting systems and my enterprise resource planning systems, my ERP systems are the endpoints of that data. So the Fed now has established you know, that, that rich data capability mm-hmm. to tie the data that supports the transaction to the actual transaction itself is provided <coughs> in credit card payments, but the vast majority of B2B payments are not really on credit card rails. They're on bank rails and mm-hmm. Fedwire and all different types of payment methodologies. FedNow, uh, RTP, et cetera, are just new payment methodologies, but they also offer that rich data component that will help with that reconciliation. But it only works if adoption of the standards is pervasive across what is today a very fractured uh, payment network. So the endpoints, so it has to be adopted by the payer, the payee, the banks that are receiving and paying. And then most importantly, it has to ultimately be adopted by the ERP vendors and the accounting platform vendors that are the endpoints of the payment and the receipt of the payment. And once that adoption is pervasive, it represents incredible uh, opportunity to automate that process. It's one of the things that I think is very exciting about the standards that have been announced by uh, the, the, the clearinghouse as well as the Fed with respect to their, their standards. But it will take time, I think, for the software vendors, the ERP vendors, the accounting vendors to adopt and implement those standards and for those to be embedded in the business processes that the corporate clients are using. Well, you know, what, what's interesting when you, when you talk about these and the different standards that are out there is I'm sure you're probably aware when it comes to ACH and we have, you know, CCD where, and CTX really that can have all kinds of addenda records. But the thing is, the different formats for the different addenda records, they vary so greatly by industry. Do you think that we're going to see that as well, that be, based on what industry people are working in, there'll be a different standard that's used, different methods? Or is there a chance to where we could see something that becomes more universal, that it's adopted for all endpoints within singular industries, but also gets to where there's more adoption cross industry? I think it has to be industry specific. And a lot of times it's um, company specific. So when you think about when you issue an invoice, it's highly unusual that the invoice is paid exactly the way that the invoice is issued. So most large buying organizations have a tremendous amount of leverage. In the automotive industry, for instance, they will have uh, standards on quality for receipt. The same thing in retail. The largest retailers in the world are going to say, if I order 15 black refrigerators and you send me stainless steel refrigerators instead of the black refrigerators that I ordered, I'm going to issue a deduct. And each one of the suppliers may uh, charge that deduct to a different ledger account on their chart of accounts. And that has to be that has to be accommodated in the standards. Otherwise, it's not going to be practically implemented by 
the buyer and the and, and the seller, the payer and the payee, in a way that really solves the problem that they have. So the issue with the reconciliation is an entire business process where large departments are built to be able to figure out, we didn't get paid a full amount. They charge us back because it was quality. Some companies are gonna just charge that off against cost of goods sold, and some are gonna charge that to a specific quality account so that they can so that they can report financials on their their quality positively as well as negatively, if that makes sense. So I think there has to be a lot of specificity. It's great to have standards, but those standards are only adopted if they can be specifically implemented in the business process that the corporate client is using. Yeah, standards are great, but only if they can be adopted, right? I do agree with that. Um, so, something I got to ask too is I have been lucky to attend a lot of different uh, AFP chapter type events, you know, Association of Financial Professionals. And in a couple of them, like one of them being the New York uh, one and in New York City. And up there, one of the things that I've heard a lot of is some of these larger treasury management systems and services that are out there and some of the bigger Forbes 500 type companies, they're excited about FedNow. They were working diligently before the, even the announcement of FedNow to start incorporating the ISO 20022 format and start being able to offer and work with the FedNow and RTP payments. Now, that's the bigger organizations. That's the bigger software players. If they get it, will it? what do you think it will do to the smaller businesses, the other downstream businesses that, you know, being a supply chain expert that are part of that supply chain? So maybe the big players got it and they're ready, but will they be able to use it or be able to help along the other players along the chain to make it a reality? So that is a great question. And my answer is different after the pandemic than before the pandemic. And the reason why I say that is before the one of the things that we noticed, I've got close to 35 years of working in, in large global supply chains and supporting clients that run large global supply chains. And until March of 2020, most chief supply chain officers and chief procurement officers looked at their supply looked at their supply chains as a zero sum game for for me to win you have to lose and so they really tried to figure out a way to push cost burden efficiency into their supply chains and that me that meant that it was a competition within their supply chain so they were trying there was a certain amount of money that was on the table and they were trying to figure out how to how to negotiate better to push more costs onto someone else what happened in the pandemic is we learned that like supply chain resiliency is the most important thing that we that we can possibly have in this environment of incredible volatility and incredible uncertainty that continues today and so the mindset of most large company chief supply chain officers and strategic procurement officers has completely switched to now, instead of being a competition where I need to one-up you on the negotiation, my survival and your survival depends on strategic partnerships. And so I really think that most of the large companies that are thinking about ways to take costs out of their business want to share that information with their suppliers, especially the strategic suppliers across their supply chain, so that everybody can take advantage of that because 
that the ability to be able to have that resiliency and know that their suppliers are also thriving is top of mind because so many of the chief supply chain officers, chief procurement officers lost suppliers. They lost the ability to be able to get goods and services during the pandemic. And so that mind shift has completely shifted. So I sort of feel like a win for one is a win for all with just about any automation, transparency, efficiency, tools and technology. And, and obviously, uh, FedNow and real-time payments ha ha represents that same rise in efficiency and effectivity. Oh, wow. I love that. The no longer one-upping each other in negotiation. And to survive, we have to work and play nice together. That is a great concept that we should see more of all, across all industries, I hope. Um, and governments. And governments, yes, definitely. And within the government itself, uh, that would be really nice. Um, you know, that's actually, that's a great question that comes up a lot too. What do you think is going to happen to the B2B world? Because we know a lot happens in the consumer world when the government gets involved, when the regulators start getting involved. What do you foresee happening in the instant payment world if the government or if regulators get involved, what do you think they would do? What would their recommendations be? Are they going to issue any guidance? Are they going to tell us this is where you should be using instant payments? This is where you shouldn't be? Or is it a case that they're just going to stay out of it and let you guys go fend for yourself? That's a great question. I've, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. Um, and I think I think the most likely outcome is they will stay out of it for a period of time, but as soon as you, as soon as there's an innovation, there's going to be some criminal or some criminal organization that's going to figure out a way to exploit or at least attempt to exploit that tool. And I do think that one of the biggest risks associated with real-time payments with a new new tool like FedNow is that it is new. And so working out the KYC processes, the, the compliance checks, the AML, all of the checks that need, need to be uh, done to ensure that the money is legitimate, that the people that are participating are legitimate, uh, are those processes haven't been tested, they haven't been pressure tested, they haven't been audited, uh, they haven't failed and been patched. And so I think probably the first place that the government will get involved is when these platforms start to get traction and they're, they're um, exploited by some nefarious actor somewhere in the world, there will be regulatory compliance that will require the adoption of new checks and balances to make sure that there's not fraud occurring, that it's not money laundering that's occurring, that it's not related to human trafficking or drug trafficking mm -hmm. or weapons, all of the bad things that go along with money movement in the world. And I think that'll be the first place that uh, the government gets involved. And whenever that happens, it always creates a lot of uncertainty and people are trying to figure out how to how to manage the regulatory and compliance oversight that's being implemented. But it's it's needed. And I always say that that's a good thing when that happens, because now you've reached critical mass and it's happening enough for the regulators to get involved. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way. You, you are critical mass when they get involved, because I have seen for years and decades that it takes an incident and then suddenly they jump in and want to mess everything up. 
But you're right, because it would be a case of where things are at such a high level of acceptance and adoption that something goes wrong to where then they get involved because it affects so many different endpoints. So uh, that's great. That's kind of, you know, I would say that's one of the surprises that really that we're going to have coming in. And that's what I want to ask you about, too, the surprises that we're going to probably see in the future. A lot of experts like yourself, myself, friends of mine, we've been thinking over, hey, this is how it's going to be used. This is what we expect to happen. This is what we foresee happening. From your opinion and you're looking forward, what do you think is going to be the big surprise that, hey, I didn't see that coming or, hey, that's a use case I hadn't really thought of? Or, you know, what, what really is out there that we sh could expect or could see that it's not at the top of everybody's discussion table. So from your opinion and, and from the way you're serving the industry, what do you think will happen that is just something that maybe we should plan for and we haven't thought of? So I'll give you a positive and I'll give you a negative, a, a positive surprise and a negative surprise. The positive surprise is I think the rich data associated with, with these platforms and the standards are gonna make a lot of people think differently about how to manage B2B payments at all levels. And I think that there will be a whole lot of, and I don't think there's a magical silver, silver bullet. And I think that uh, there are so many B2B uh, methods, processes, et cetera. Um, and they're so complex, like we were just talking about, there's gonna be all kinds of opportunities for industry-specific, even company-specific solutions to automate that process. But I think that there's going to be a and, and that's what innovation is all about. There's going to be all this to toil and work behind the scenes and, and you know, some standards and methods are going to fail. And then all of a sudden, overnight, everybody's going to realize that they can automate the procure-to-pay process and the order-to-cash process. And now all of a sudden we're going to realize that we have the potential to take all of these resources that have been tied up trying to figure out which invoices have been paid and which invoices still need to be collected. And I'm going to have all of this great data on how my suppliers are performing and as, as sellers, I'm going to know how my customers are performing. And there's going to be this massive opportunity to improve the efficiency and the effectivity of trade relationships because think about how many calories are being burned between trading partners right now buyers and suppliers just trying to figure out have you paid me what you owe me and which invoice was being paid like probably 50 percent of the relationship capital is tied up in that and if i can eliminate 50 percent of my capital down to 10 percent now i got 40 percent of my relationship capital where we can innovate on new products and we can figure out a better way to operate more effectively. And it's gonna create such a massive opportunity for efficiency in trading partners. That's the positive. Okay, what's the um, negative? Because that's what I know I'm, I'm dying to hear now because that's a great yeah, positive. The negative is what I alluded to before, that there are, you know, when you think about new technology and the implementation of new technology, you always try to think around the corners to things that you can't see from where you are right now. And I think as we're thinking about this, we're thinking about all of the opportunities to create efficiency and speed things up, but we're also bypassing all of the compliance checks that we have today. And we're by doing that, we open up business transactions to fraud and to security risks 
and to threats. And, and you know, the, the I can't, you cannot overstate the proliferation of cybersecurity, financial security threats over the last several years. The nefarious actors in the financial arena, financial services, financial technology that represent threats, whether it's terrorist organizations, you know, there are a lot of state actors that are very involved in all of this. You can't overstate it. It is, it's a war that's occurring today. It's just being fought online and it's being fought, you know, sort of at the business level. And I think the, the negative is we probably are not thinking enough proactively about how to defend against those types of risks and threats as we implement new processes, new systems, new technology. Um, we're bypassing the old technology that has been pressure tested with all of these regulatory and compliance issues. So that, that's, what, that's where I see the negative threat. The good news is, uh, you know, depending on what statistics you believe, somewhere between five and 15% of global GDP is nefarious activity, right? Mm -hmm. That means that 85 to 95% is legitimate. So 85 to 95% of the people are going to be working for the good and trying to, to solve these problems. And, and we'll work through those things quickly. But I think, I think a lot of people will be surprised at how, uh, you know, when payments happen instantaneously, there's an opportunity for all of those bad things that are happening behind the scenes to be exposed more quickly. All right. Well, PJ, this has been a great discussion. And I got one last question for you. You started off telling us how you got into payments. What I would ask is today, what advice would you give to somebody who's coming into the payments industry that they should follow to be successful? There's a lot of people that get thrown into the industry. Some of us, a lot of us land here by accident. And what advice would you give to somebody who's coming into this industry and wants to be successful? What would you tell them to do? Um, so I think it's a, it's a pretty simple answer, really. Um, it's a fascinating business, but it is ever-changing. There's no way that you could ever be an expert because as soon as you are an expert in something, everything's going to change, whether it's a change because of a regulatory and compliance issue, whether it's a change because of some new innovative financial technology that's introduced. Um, so the people that are going to be highly successful are people that have a voracious appetite to learn. And so whenever somebody has a voracious appetite to learn and loves learning new things, um, you need to foster that. So foster, I would encourage people that have a voracious appetite to learn and want to solve problems to look at payments as a business to get into and as a career, and then do everything you can to foster that appetite for learning. Ask questions. Most people will not ask a question because they don't want to they don't want to sound dumb. And the reality is, as soon as you ask that question, if there's 20 people in the room, the other 19 are going to be saying, I had the same question. I just didn't want to ask it. Mm -hmm. So do those types of things. Ask questions, learn, study, make sure that you're expanding your network. Always ask five questions. Why go as deep as you can to really understand and foster that appetite for learning. And you'll be incredibly successful in this in this in this business and in this career. 
All right. I love it. Especially since I've been the one sitting here asking all the questions. I do want to say thank you, PJ, for being on today. And to everybody else out there, I mean, we learned a lot. We got to talk about the reconciliation process, how complex it is. We talked about how there's no longer one-upping people when it comes to negotiations and survival depends on partnerships. I think that was one of the most golden nuggets I got out of this conversation. And then some of the positive and negatives that we're going to see that are happening. For those of you out there listening, if there is a topic, actually, I should say first, if you want to get a hold of PJ, I know he's on LinkedIn. I know that you can also email me, Kevin at PaymentsProfessor.com, and I'll put you in contact with him. And if there's a topic or a speaker that you would like to see on the Payments Podium, you can also email me, Kevin at PaymentsProfessor.com, and I'll do what I can to get him on the Payments Podium. But for now, I have to say, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.